Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about how we can create a freer, fairer, and more prosperous future. There are people on both sides of the political spectrum who feel like online discourse is out of control. For those on the left, they see examples of people hiding behind a shield of digital anonymity to troll women, use hate speech, and dox critics. For those on the political right, they worry that internet platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Google, that they're censoring conservatives, downgrading right-wing voices in search results, newsfeed algorithms, and even shadow banning their accounts. Now, these impulses are mirror opposites in one sense. The left is worried that the internet as currently constructed is allowing too much of bad kinds of speech. The right is worried that it tolerates too little of the right kinds of speech. But both perspectives share the core idea that it is time for the government to step in and do something about it. Up until now, the internet has been the freest, most unregulated communications medium probably in human history, for the last half century or so. But there are now calls from both sides of the aisle for the government to take a stronger hand with the internet. If you're a fan of this podcast, you've heard me talk before about my research into the history of broadcast regulation in the 1960s and 70s. And some of the new proposals for the regulation of the internet, they bear an uncanny resemblance to the ways we once regulated television and radio. And that includes a set of rules known as the Fairness Doctrine that were intended to promote free speech, but which ended up being weaponized to censor political dissent by presidents from both political parties. Whoopsies. But now it looks increasingly like our policymakers, who are ignorant of their past and arrogant in their belief that they can micromanage a better, fairer internet, may make some of the same avoidable mistakes all over again. My guest today is John Samples, who you'll remember from two episodes ago when we discussed his role on Facebook's Independent Oversight Board. But before all of that, John and I co-wrote a paper for the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University last year, last fall. It was a cautionary tale about what could go wrong if a new generation of techno-progressives and conservative populists try to engineer the internet in similar ways to how their ancestors attempted to fix broadcasting. So John, when we were writing this paper, um, from your perspective, what was it that we were trying to warn uh, the readers about? I mean, this is both the folks at the Knight Institute, the people attending the conference, and anyone who happened to read the paper. Uh, What was it we were trying to caution them? Well, I felt there was, uh, and I know, I believe you've shared this view, which was uh, we, you and I had worked on different parts and different aspects of the uh, history of the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, and that was, uh, an, you know, a part of the government that uh, I think the Supreme Court had, un- had, the government had unwisely decided to exempt in some measure from the First Amendment. So you had a, essentially a classic licensing regime uh, for broadcasters. And my concern going in was that, uh, you know, the fairness doctrine, which had governed and uh, there were other uh, kinds of policy doctrines, um, had governed broadcasting speech uh, for decades, uh, had 
proven itself to be a potent way to limit and to chill speech. Uh, and what was a much more important uh, now then than it is now, which is broadcasting. Um, and so the, what I saw was that this history, as we got into the uh, dynamics of the internet and social media, this history had, you know, it, it was been forgotten. I mean, the fairness doctrine had been done away with over 30 years ago or so. And before that, it had been really kind of inert for more than a decade. So it seemed to me that people who were talking about the public square and public oversight of uh, these platforms, social media platforms, uh, hadn't taken into consideration the history they had. Uh, and that that history showed that it was very difficult for elected officials to uh, stay away, and particularly the, uh, the Kennedy, uh, Johnson, and Nixon era, which uh, raised real questions, both um, overtly and then behind the scenes. To what extent was uh, coverage of uh, an administration shaped by the fact that these uh, network affiliates had to be licensed. Attempts to use the licensing process to affect uh, news judgment, editorial decisions at CBS News, for example. Uh, so all of that seemed to me to be whole great lessons for talking about public uh, oversight of platforms. And I thought so they won't, it wasn't being talked about enough. People were very all too optimistic about the benevolence of this kind of regulation. I'm reminded uh, almost all of the moments that we described, including the fairness doctrine itself, most of them were well-intentioned. I mean, the, the people who, who kind of wrote the fairness doctrine into administrative law, I mean, who, who enacted it, mm. uh, and depending on what you look at, it's either 1949, 1959, their intentions were good and the abuses of those rules, I mean, the intentions of the folks who are responsible for abusing the fairness doctrine to suppress, you know, right-wing radio in the sixties, mm -hmm. they're, they're two different sets of people. And mm -hmm. I was kind of reminded of that at the, um, we went to the conference where there were, it was uh, a lot of the folks at the conference were in favor of using antitrust to crack down a number of, problems they saw in big tech and on social media mm -hmm. platforms, problems of everything from hate speech to excessive monopoly power and everything in between or a decline of local journalism and, and so on. And I kept thinking to myself, there's a, a gap here between what these very well-intentioned people want to see happen, uh, the methods mm -hmm. they're going to use and what is what might possibly happen, the unintended maleficent potential consequences of mm -hmm. these actions. And it did feel like we were not learning anything. We've, we've tried this in the past with the best of intentions and it went horribly awry and had terrible complications, you know, terrible consequences for free speech and civil liberties. Mm -hmm. And we're at risk of doing that again uh, today with the internet. Um, so I, I think I share that sense of, whoa, this is, I know it's only 40 years ago, that we formally ended the fairness doctrine, but mm -hmm. it's not that long. We should be able to remember are our memories really that bad. Um, mm -hmm. Now, one, one of the complications uh, too, as we, as we wrote the paper and then discussed it is 
it's slippery. All the definitions are very slippery. And so people will use the same word and mean something very different by it. Uh, one of those things is like public interest. Like mm-hmm. all of us agree that everything the government does should be to pursue the public interest. It's just the what what's good for the people, what's good for the general public. Mm-hmm. But that word means something very different in uh, broadcasting regulation. Or I think another good example that I'll, I'll ask you to speak to is uh, what we mean when we talk about the First Amendment and free speech. And in, in the paper, you actually, the, one of the sections you wrote uh, was what is uh, about First Amendment collectivism, mm-hmm. kind of positive First Amendment versus a negative vision of the First Amendment. And so it uses the same words, First Amendment, free speech, but means something radically different. Why don't you unpack that for for our listeners? Uh, Yeah, that's a – first of all, I didn't make that term up because even today in America, the idea of collectivism is generally speaking not a a word that adds luster to a concept. You call something collectivist because you're you're not – supporting it for sure. But it actually was a term that was used by a, a scholar now was written in the last couple of years about this. And essentially it means that the, um, in his position, he, he's not saying that the uh, media or the internet companies should be owned by uh, the government and directed by it. That's, uh, you know, that's not, one idea of collectivism, but that's not what he was saying. I think generally what he was saying was that uh, he wanted the uh, uh, there to be uh, somewhat modest uh, interventions to try to make the uh, speech and the way people express themselves serve some general interest. Uh, that and so for the same writer. And for many others, the idea of the public interest uh, is a attractive standard uh, because, after all, people want, generally speaking, uh, policy to ultimately be, if it's going to be made, about the public interest. Uh, you don't really find too many people arguing for policies made in the private interest. Um, but, you know... I think about a situation that was very controversial, remains controversial, uh, when this notion of public interest came up, which was the, uh, the 2004 election campaign. And the, uh, there was a group that made a video about, uh, John Kerry's service in Vietnam and swift boats, the, right? The swift boat, the swift boats says danger of slipping into history, I guess, but the swift boat. <laughs> Uh, he'd been a commander and so on, and it was a very uh, harsh critique of his conduct. And uh, a large, now even larger, uh, television network called Sinclair Network, but it was it had licensees at the time that were, and those licenses were, a, you know, its most important asset. Without those licenses, the value of that company plummeted, and it depended on uh, the Federal Communications Commission to approve those licenses. And so there they said they were going to show the, the uh, Swift Boat video in itself. Uh, and then I think maybe have a wide ranging uh, conversation after, which was the initial proposal. Well, there was a, uh, a gigantic blow up. And I remember one Senator uh, uh, 
saying something like that they should not be allowed to show that video, that they operate in a, with a license and they have to op use the broadcasting spectrum in the public interest. So her assumption was that showing this was not in the public interest, that it represented, I don't know what, partisan or other interest. Uh, but in, you know, implicitly, she was also saying, if you, you know, these companies, affiliates you, Sinclair, you have out there, you know, they're nice little affiliates. It's a shame that something happened to them because they're not serving the public interest. And in fact, if that were so, uh, that was grounds for taking their license away. Well, you know, Sinclair did as expected, which was, first of all, the first back down was uh, uh, changing it, bringing on more uh, uh, kinds of discussion and one thing or another, and finally it just went away. Uh, they really couldn't take that risk. And so I think our point in the paper and history suggests is that this notion of public interest is very attractive. And notions like the fairness doctrine suggest, oh, we'll have a better public debate, right? But the reality is quite something else. And, you know, I even that senator, when she evoked that idea, uh, it's at least plausible that in her mind she saw this as a violation of the public interest. But uh, it looks more like just a threat and a, a kind of uh, gaining leverage over expression that needed to be heard whether or not you agreed with it so i think yeah well you made this point um uh we ended up taking out of a later version of the draft but in uh, of our paper but in the early draft uh this i think applies quite broadly that when when we appeal to the public interest to suppress certain forms of speech and to encourage other forms of speech and that's kind of that First Amendment collectivism idea. The government should put the thumb on the scale to make sure not just that um, all voices have an opportunity to be heard, but that mm -hmm. all voices um, have a right to, to be heard. They mm -hmm. will be heard. And for that to happen, the government has to put a thumb on the scale. That's the kind mm -hmm. of idea there. But that when the state pursues that, uh, it really ends up uh, – buttressing, helping those who already have power, that it, it gives power to incumbents. It gives power to those who have political connections mm -hmm. um, because they're the ones who can, you know, they're the ones who have the ears of a senator. They're mm -hmm. the ones who have pull with the political class. Um, and I think you made the observation in an early draft of a paper about campaign finance was the same way that uh, there was a, you know, an, an early effort by Congress to control the amount of spending on television ads uh, mm -hmm. in the in 1968, in the late 60s and early 70s, um, because it was helping political outsiders get a hearing. People like um, uh, people like Eugene McCarthy, who was a very for the time radical anti-war Democrat, and people like George Wallace, who was a you know radical populist racist, uh, challenging from the right. So both mm -hmm. radical left and radical right were getting a hearing because they could spend lots of money on targeted television ads in particular states and sitting members of Congress didn't like that. And now, of course, I'm sure in their heads, they thought they were defending the public interest, but the reality was they were securing their own political power because if you remove the ability to do that, it suppresses 
outsiders, people on the political margins, and rewards incumbents and those who already have power. And so I think that applies quite broadly um, to sure. campaign finance, to broadcasting, to potentially social media and the internet. Well, that's why I think, you know, um, well, first of all, these kinds of arguments that touch on speech and particularly money and speech and other other similar ones, uh, the, they, uh, they don't, people don't come out and say, look, this, you know, this makes it less likely that I'll be um, reelected. Or they don't say, well, this is just some crazy uh, incumbent, uh, some crazy challenger is going to say all kinds of lies about me. They, they don't say things like that. They talk about the dangers of money in politics. And, and here's the concern I would have in our current situation. It is true what Mark Zuckerberg says about uh, ads on Facebook. They really do offer a chance for unknown causes. For I mean, look at the ad you mentioned. Uh, you, we hadn't heard of that group, the ad that was uh, asking me to do this or yeah. that. We hadn't heard of that group. Uh, Tech accountability it, or whatever. Never yeah, heard yeah. of them. Right. Yeah, yeah, they came out of the – and they didn't have to raise a great deal of money, actually, to have those ads. They had their say uh, on that issue. And then you have the challengers uh, online. What he says is correct. This is this ad policy is one that uh, you know it ads matter on social media, not just Facebook. Uh, so when people start talking about what should the ad say and all of that kind of stuff, uh, you can see why that's attractive to people. Some of the specifics we've heard about some of the some of the ads. Um, strangely contain things that are not true or said to not be true and so on. Um, but people get around to, you know, the issue is what is the ad, the conditions of the ad, all that kind of stuff. That's what people are concerned about uh, speech. And I think uh, elected officials are too, in part because they think it's unfair, not the public interest or whatever. Uh, the general rule, I think, and John Hyde's first book is really important on this about exactly what the people say, right? We tend to think of like people have interest and then they just, oh, uh, I, this is the interest I'm concerned about. And now I'm going to make up some rationales to pursue that interest. So I'm going to, I'm afraid of the challenger in his ad. So I'm going to talk about money and politics being bad. It's not really like that. What Hyde's work shows is that you know, people so quickly, they have these kinds of fundamental uh, interests and fundamental desires, and they very quickly, without even noticing it, are coming up with rationalizations about why their way needs to be the way. And so these are not, in a sense, we're not any of us culpable in some respects, in the sense that, um, you know, that's the way the human brain is built. And so the people are talking about the public interest haven't gone through some process where they're sort of very uh, crudely and kind of cynically making up justifications for something else they believe. It's just that it's all uh, together. The rest of us, the role of free speech there is to say, look, humans are flawed in certain ways. Should we really let elected officials, who have a tremendous advantage anyway, should we let them uh, have some leverage over the content of ads or spending on ads or ads on the platform. We don't have to assume they're evil. Yeah, there's that temptation to essentialize, you know, 
it's part of party polarization mm-hmm. and, well in human nature is that the other side can't just be wrong they have, they have to be maniacally evil so i tend to think that that when it comes to proposals like these it's they're it's they're well intentioned and we just often think hey hey maybe consider consider the nature consider this whole body of public choice theory before you go about assuming mm-hmm that the government bureaucrats you empower will always look out for the best interests of the citizenry, you know, like it, it, it's uh, unintended consequences, maybe a little bit of naivete rather than maleficent mm-hmm. intent. Though that sometimes exists too, I suppose. That sometimes um, exists. Yeah, we, sometimes, don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to have to. I mean, I think the more you, uh, more experience you have, the more knowledge people have over time of what, um, that could come into play more, but uh, certainly a lot of people that make the arguments are not uh, trying to manipulate things. Well, it's like this. I mean, it, all of these, some of this is the problem of we're dealing with relatively new mass media forms that are still growing and maturing. And I think it takes time for folks, for the, for the general public and for policymakers to realize just how complicated any of these things are so that, you know, it might sound simple. If you get in a conversation on Twitter about content moderation, we'll say, well, of course, uh, the government should step in and prevent Facebook from airing uh, lies. You know, if Donald Trump or another political candidate from whatever party, if people lie in their political ads, uh, Facebook should step in and stop the lies. Mm -hmm. You know, and that sounds good on the surface, but Determining what's a lie and what isn't a lie um, mm-hmm. is very, very complicated and gets very messy very quickly. I mean, to some extent, the truth is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. Not always, but right, mm-hmm. but like a lot of times, you know, is this political? At you know, is such and such a politician? Are they a liar? And so, so you have you, you make a political campaign ad accusing the other politician of being a liar. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the difference between them lying versus being mistaken mm-hmm. versus making a statement in the past that they've updated since. Like all those things can, you know, you could consider them a lie from one angle or an honest mistake from another. And you're then asking a third party to step in and decide, no, yes, no, A, B test, is this a lie or not? Mm-hmm. Um that's an immensely complicated question and it's not really a reasonable, it's not a thing that we want even uh, a social media company to be engaged in deciding, let alone, you know, a panel of government bureaucrats. Um, There's a reason why we're suspicious of, we we don't say freedom of speech except for lies. (laughs) Well, Um, a lot of people do have slander and and, and the like, but Uh, a lot of people do believe or are sometimes surprised to find uh, and on both sides all sides of the spectrum surprised to find that uh, you know um, telling falsehoods under certain political speech is uh, really protected I do think we're also in a new uh, I've been thinking about this more and more a new situation that actually makes all of this tougher with uh, and I'm speaking of the social media platforms and the, the, as we said, you know, and it's generally known, I think, the, the platforms don't have to enforce the First Amendment. They're not covered by the First Amendment. They're not required to uh, observe it. 
Now, in the general world, the public forum, the world of political speech outside the platforms, we have uh, 100 years of uh, doctrine about First Amendment speech, about incitement, about defamation, and also about uh, falsehoods, telling falsehoods uh, in political life. Uh, we've gone through a lot of different things. We've had, you know, periods where incitement to violence justified really shutting down a political party uh, and so on. We've made mistakes uh, as, a, as a collective, I think, and the court has learned from those and so on. And plus, there's precedent and these things are, you know, court has still has a fairly high reputation. So we don't have to have an argument every time about where the incitement rule uh, falls and so on, about falsehoods and so on, because it's in that court system and it's pretty settled. And once, but the platforms are not underneath the courts uh, in that sense, in the First Amendment sense. And in a, I think there's a good and some potentially bad thing about that. The good thing is that um, the First Amendment ideas that we always had about where the line should be drawn and the value of free speech and so on, all of that has to be redone from the bottom up. We have to make the actual arguments. We're like John Stuart Mill, we have to know what our argument is, we have to know what the arguments against it are, and we have to persuade people because the policymakers and the people trying to influence them, uh, they're not required to follow what the court says. Right. So we have to actually make that argument and persuade them and win that argument uh, without the help of tradition, the help of the constitutional text and, and so on. So that's a good thing. The potentially bad thing is that uh, we won't win that argument. Right. That's possible that we won't and that we'll end up with uh, uh, something less than is possible or is valuable for the country. I think that I hope that's unlikely, but it could happen. But I also think in the long run for a country like the United States, that that's probably not going to be the mistakes uh, will show up and people will recognize them. And you'll, it'll be good. The story could be good initially uh, or bad and then good, but it's going to be good in the end because the way the culture is, the way the country is, and the way the power of the arguments ultimately, I think it's ultimately rooted in the idea. If I want to speak out, I have to tolerate you speaking out about things I don't want to hear and don't like and think are bad. Um, and but we got to win that again. But uh, you know, again, it's a good thing because maybe we got because we had Roberts or we had uh, William J. Brennan or whomever, Bill Douglas or whomever was always there, right? And they had these words, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and we could talk about Brandeis and. Whitney could be uh, quoted and all that stuff. You know, maybe that's a kind of a complacency that's been introduced. And now we're called, we're called forth to say we've got to really make these arguments and, and it really matters. I, I think that's a kind of invigorating uh, thing that will help free speech in the long run. That's a, that's a that's the optimistic take, and I I, I mean I, it makes sense that you know uh, every generation. We talk about this in other avenues. That every generation has a you know a commitment to kind of rediscover the importance of of blank, whether it's the importance of mm -hmm. uh, I don't know patriotic sacrifice or the importance of um, uh, uh, whatever it may be. That mm -hmm. uh, what's what's the old saying? If they're like refresh the tree of liberty, 
I don't mm-hmm. know, right wing people, alt right people like to say this a lot in a disturbing way, but the, mm-hmm. the idea that you had to shed blood every generation to preserve and protect American liberty. Um, and, but that sense applies, I mean, to issues of, of civil liberties and free speech as well, which yeah. is, mm-hmm. um, we do, it, you can only pass on a certain – you can pass on the expectation of liberty, but you can't pass on a kind of a robust sense of why it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think every generation does have to relearn some of these lessons. And when you get a new media form, uh, it's not clear whether the, the um, freedoms and protections that have been fought for, struggled for – in other forms and other forums will apply to that new form. And mm-hmm. we saw this actually, I was thinking as we were talking about, um, uh, about radio. So what, one of the things that's interesting is as, uh, you know, mass commercial radio becomes a thing in the 1920s and thirties that it's at the same moment as they're dis- uh, as newspapers are actually pushing for greater kind of first amendment protections, free speech and press rights. Mm-hmm. Um, radio is this new thing that people are like, well, it's different than newspapers. They had this thing called the scarcity principle where they said that, you know, there's no mm-hmm. theoretical limit to the number of newspapers there can be, but there is a theoretical limit to the number of radio stations that can be licensed. And so because of that, and it, some of that was an ex post facto justification, but because of that, they said the new freedoms and protections that are being won for the press and for print media, we're not going to apply them to radio. And they're actually key decisions uh, for those who are, you know, uh, mm-hmm. lawyers, they'll, they'll know like near V Minnesota, which banned prior restraint on newspaper publishing. Well, mm-hmm. at the same time, within a year of near V Minnesota, Trinity United Methodist versus the Federal Radio Commission basically said, no, you can do that, but for radio. So mm-hmm. we're, so you have this new media form, and the question is, are we going to apply all these protections that were fought for in an older media form? And with radio, we said no. Mm-hmm. And there were lots of downstream ill consequences of that for people who care about civil liberties and free speech. And we're now – our generation – and then a later generation had to answer that with television. Uh, in the 1960s. And we've discussed that, uh, I think, uh, our last episode, John. Um, And uh, I know you've done a lot of work on that as well. We're now, this generation has to answer that in regards to the internet and social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And the initial initial salvo in that fight was actually that the internet received um, far less regulation uh, uh, than these older media forums. I mean... Mm -hmm. And, and the internet flourished as a result. I mean, because of the some of the legislation passed in the 1990s and the jurisprudence that uh, invalidated parts of it and upheld parts of this is all you know Communications Decency Act stuff. But mm-hmm. in the 90s, there were some key laws passed and key co- court decisions made that actually had, in a sense, greater freedoms and less regulation for this new thing called the internet. These new media forms. And because of that, we have the modern internet, we have modern social media, and um, but now we're we're returning to that question: uh, Are we going to allow? Are we going to keep those protections? Are we going to water them down for a variety of reasons? So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, but it is interesting, you know, about the way the cycles of ideas, and so 
the licensing system, the ownership really by government of the broadcasting spectrum, that's really a 20s, 30s idea that goes forth from there. Uh, and it's, it's really a manager, it's, you know, managerial, collective, more collectivist, uh, and, and seeing the government and government to regulation as impersonal and needed and in the public interest. And then you have the, that comes apart on the backside, uh, the fairness doctrine and so on during a liberalizing period from the late seventies, uh, really to 2000 or so. Uh, it just so happens that the Internet comes about at a time of high liberal reform, as it were, in which the state is much more uh, in the economy in general. And so you have not just one party or one person, uh, like a president, uh, driving forth uh, the Section 230 legislation. You end up with people who are actually concerned about economics and from both parties. You have a bipartisan supporters for that uh, to create a space that will be friendly to speech and to business success on the internet and to develop the internet. Uh, we're going from that period. We may now well be living in a period that was more skeptical for the Obama period or before uh, about that, those kinds of things. And so you switched. So you went from sort of regulation to deregulation from twenties to eighties. And then from nineties, Internet comes in a deregulation period, and now we're going to see the extent to which uh, a more regulatory-friendly atmosphere leads to uh, changes in the Internet. Uh, I I really, you know, I think maybe the hopeful thing to say there is with the FCC and the Fairness Doctrine, they had to actually, both parties had to come to understand that they could hurt each other with it, and it wasn't. So they didn't want it for that reason, the damage done. Uh, this The hopeful thing for us is that it's now the presumption is on the side. The, the thing that is dug in is the liberal position, the position that government is hands off, and you have to overcome that. And so that's at least the harder argument uh, to overcome. It's an easier position for uh, liberty than trying to overcome the FCC and its uh, micromanagement of broadcasting. Well, there was that. Um, it, it's kind of the same odd phenomenon with uh, uh, immigration policy, where if you go back 15 years ago, uh, you know the the liberal, the liberty loving, I guess, position on immigration was uh, more on the right than on the left. Uh, mm-hmm. Where you had, you know, kind of the opposition from labor unions, left wing hard hats. Um, Bernie Sanders was a, you know, a key opponent to immigration reform in 2007. Mm-hmm. But because Trump is so uniquely unpopular mm-hmm. with the left, anything Trump supports has become toxic on the left. And so, to the point where, since Trump is a is a is opposed to immigration liberalization, he's a you know a nativist in his immigration policy. Mm-hmm. It has made what was once kind of a left-wing hard hat orthodoxy toxic mm-hmm. to the point mm-hmm. where former opponents, left-wing opponents of immigration are now for at least limited immigration uh, liberalization. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a key, is a key example because he's mm-hmm. spanned that whole time period. But we see mm-hmm. the same thing possibly to some extent happening with calls for internet regulation that, you know, back during the Bush, the second Bush era, uh, administration and, the Obama administration, you'd get these periodic calls for a 
revived fairness doctrine or some kind of uh, new style um, public interest regulation of the internet periodically coming from coming from the Democratic Party, coming from the left, that's all kind of quieted down because now they realize the Trump administration, if, if they had had their, if there was a fairness doctrine today uh, that the, the Trump administration could use and weaponize, I'm not sure anyone on the left would feel comfortable with having given that power to the executive. And mm-hmm. so in a funny way, right-wing uh, techno-skeptical populism has made calls for this regulation um, toxic might be a strong word, but it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I think, put advocates, left-wing advocates for internet regulation on the back foot, at least as long as Trump's in office. No, um, yeah, that's very good, yes. I, I think uh, the strongest reason to think that over the next four years, this, despite the fact that the incumbent president now and his uh, – uh, opponent in the fall both want to get rid of 230 and seem fairly antagonistic to social media leadership in the valley. Strongest reason to think that things will stay about the same is that it's not clear that the companies, uh, the two parties, uh, can come up with legislation that uh, they will both they, that they trust each other enough and the mechanisms and the institutions uh, can be fashioned where they don't have to trust each other too much uh, to bring this about because there's also uh, the danger that, um, you know, if you get the wrong legislation, you can really hurt yourself down the line in a few years one way or the other, right? Uh, And and so that kind of, it makes it an unstable situation for writing the, uh, in this kind of, but you also, I think, on the other side of this, want the companies to remain fairly unified against uh, serious uh, regulation. And so if you have a kind of divided government, as it were, that can't agree to the terms of the law, and the companies remain fairly united in wanting to control the platforms and so on, you've got a good chance of coming out with minimal kinds of changes and maybe not so terrible. Uh, but uh, if the government's united and the companies aren't, watch out. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's when you get into trouble real quickly. But it does remind me, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, it's that sense that, well, the fairness doctrine, as long as each party could visualize a way to weaponize it to their own partisan benefit and, could, and didn't, couldn't imagine it helping the other side, it was, it was able to be part of the kind of political equilibrium. But as soon as both parties realized, oh, wait, I can't make this solely for the, you know, the other side's going to get a turn in power. And mm-hmm. when they do, watch out. Um, and that, that, that comes because of Nixon, right? Kennedy, uh, the Kennedy administration was able to weaponize the fairness doctrine to go after right-wing radio critics of his administration. And that seemed fine as long as only, you know, People like John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and uh, you know center left folks had that mm-hmm. power, but then Nixon le- used fairness doctrine, the the implication of fairness doctrine action to lean on uh, CBS mm-hmm. in their coverage of the Vietnam War and his conduct of the Vietnam War, and suddenly all these folks who had been involved in the Kennedy 
effort to weaponize the fairness doctrine said, oh, wait, that's right. The other side gets a chance too. And they, they really cooled on the idea. And, I, and it's interesting because you can see that. It, it's something of a, uh, I guess, a, a, a rule of how, I don't know what, what, what we could call that law, yeah, <laughs> a law yeah. of action. But yeah. when, as long as parties can only, are, their, their imaginations only extend to how they can use one of these rules for partisan benefit, not how the other side can, um, they'll do it, but mm-hmm. they'll abuse that power, that regulation, they'll engage in rent-seeking behavior, et cetera. But once they realize that the shoe can can fit on the other foot, they really do cool on the idea. And uh, we're seeing that, I think, happening now. So yeah, that's a kind of, I don't know if that's a hopeful take, an optimistic mm-hmm. take, mm-hmm. but maybe it's the least bad case looking at the next say four to eight years that yep. both sides well, will, will hold off on the extreme um, internet regulation stuff. Well, it's certainly, I mean, the situation is seems uh, troubling, which is that there does seem to be a great deal of uh, antagonism among elites uh, from both parties toward uh, the companies. However, that could be um, exaggerated, and it may be that the companies have strengths that uh, aren't being noted right now. I'll add here at the end that John and I recorded this conversation prior to the big congressional hearing on tech and antitrust. You may have watched a little bit of it live streamed. It featured the CEOs of Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon being grilled by both Republicans and Democrats who used some of the very same talking points we discussed in this conversation. The results of the hearing were a disappointment for those who wanted decisive federal action to take big tech down a notch. So John was a little bit prescient when he noted the resilience of the tech companies under fire. Of course, those congresspeople who put the hearings on the docket, they couldn't have predicted the ways that public opinion towards internet platforms would shift for the better as a result of the COVID pandemic and how tech has helped many people cope with the shutdowns and social distancing. The entire hearing felt out of date, a little bit out of touch. And as I hoped, in at least this instance, the internet hawks from both the GOP and Democratic Party, they fought with each other as much as they did the tech CEOs. They aren't on the same page, which makes sweeping new regulation of the internet looking a little less likely in the immediate future than it did even last year. Here's hoping that holds for quite some time. In any case, it's pretty clear that robust free speech is alive and well in the new media ecosystem. For example, just by listening to a podcast like this, like Building Tomorrow, we have a point of view that often falls outside the norms of mainstream politics. By doing so, you're proving that the lack of a fairness doctrine for the internet has in no way harmed the quantity and quality of digital speech. So with a little extra sauce on it today, let me say thank you for listening. And until next time, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts. 